Hello and welcome back to the Black Doctors Podcast. I'm Stephen, your host. This week, it is the last episode for the month of August. So I'm going to jump into some current events and talk about some topics, or a topic rather, in the field of medical ethics. I'm going to be talking about some of the medical ethics associated with artificial intelligence and machine learning. As usual, Twitter or X, I guess the, the application formerly known as Twitter, is always an abundant wealth of topics for conversation. There's two things I want to talk about that have happened on Twitter or are making the rounds. One is going to affect your practice as a future physician or a current physician. It is an ongoing dispute with maintenance of certification and the American Board of Medical Specialties is gaining some traction on social media. So happy to see it. And it does spark a further conversation. The second is going to be another hot take by a cardiac surgeon. He's actually been featured in the podcast before, but this morning he actually fired off another hot tweet. The tweet states, I hope this new wave of COVID, you know, COVID cases are starting to spike across the country. I hope this new wave of COVID that is being slowly introduced does not lead to repeat OR shutdowns, decreased number of cases, and everything else we experienced back in 2020 through 2021. It will be the final blow to the training of an already poorly trained batch of residents. This is uh, by uh, a cardiac surgeon who practices in Boston. The final blow to the training of an already poorly trained batch of residents. So... As I've talked about on social media before, you know, feel free to say whatever comes across your mind. Uh, we have the freedom of speech. We're not afraid from the repercussions of the things that we say. So dissecting this tweet, this individual brings up a very important issue. During the COVID pandemic, there were limitations. There were stressors placed on graduate medical education. I experienced this firsthand. I was in the Navy. I had anesthesia residents, and we had to scramble to balance the safety of our residents, because there, there is some you know responsibility there with maintaining their education and their training. And we worked very hard, as I'm sure a lot of programs did. I spent a lot of time developing a simulation curriculum with, one of the, with the help of one of my colleagues. And when our new residents started in the operating room, because our volume was down, a lot of their time was spent in the sim center with the high fidelity mannequin, going through some basic cases to, you know, hopefully prevent as much skills attrition or, or that lack of opportunity and learning. This happened, you know, in multiple specialties programs across the country. But, you know, if you look around, you ask anybody that had residents in, during that, you know, everybody got really good at treating COVID and uh, understanding the, the physiology, the different mechanisms and the, the pharmacology, some of which worked, some of it didn't, the different modes of ventilation, some of which worked and some of which didn't. And, that was the focus of a year, two years of graduate medical education. And that was reflected, you know, it affected the medical students that were in their third and fourth years that didn't have as much clinical experience. It affected interns who, again, all they knew was how to manage COVID. It affected anesthesia residents and surgery residents who had low case volumes because the operating rooms in a lot of facilities were closed down or at a reduced capacity. So it is a very real issue that this tweet brings up. But again, it's in the delivery where in the latter half of the tweet says it will be the final blow to the training of an already poorly trained batch of residents. That's just, you know, it, it can be phrased so much better. He, he 
post a article in response that kind of talks about some of the training deficits that are seen in some uh, residency programs. Again, because of matters that are outside of their control. And it was our job as faculty members to try to shore up some of those um, those gaps in, in training. And, and, you know, we did the best we could with the tools that we had. So, so there's that. So once again, the, this, the tweet in general is not constructive. It doesn't help. It doesn't make people feel better. Realize that everything that you tweet, you know, you go to work and now you're working with these residents or these nurses or whoever that you may have disparaged intentionally or in, in, unintentionally. You need to work with them. And, you know, nobody needs that kind of stress at work or to feel that uncomfortable. So just think about the things that, that you say. Think about, you know, is this really helping and does it need to be phrased this way? The next topic, it also comes from Twitter. This is where I first came across this, this subject, but it's something that I had thought about for a while. There's two Twitter accounts to follow. The first is Westby Fisher. It's at Dr. Wes. And the other, it's a hematologist oncologist by the name of Aaron Goodman. His Twitter handle is Aaron Goodman 33, Papa Heem. And I stumbled upon this debate. There was a podcast episode involved. And basically it's talking about MOC or maintenance of certification. There is a large organization, the American Board of Medical Specialties, and they cover a lot of the specialty boards that we're all a part of. So going back and breaking down some of the terminology, board certification, right? You take that after you finish residency. You, you also have your board certification as part of your steps one through three. So, you know, after your first year of residency, you complete intern, you can usually sit for step three and become a board certified physician. You're not subspecialized, you're not specialized yet, but you are a board certified physician. Well, once you've completed residency, you've finished the requirements to become a board certified physician in X specialty, whether that's orthopedic surgery or internal medicine or anesthesia, you sit for that board exam with that qualifying organization. For me, it's the American Board of Anesthesiologists and, you know, American Board of Internal Medicine, ABIM, it's another organization. This board certification indicates that you have completed the necessary training and you have gained the knowledge and skills required to practice in that specialty at a high level. Now, after you've completed your board certification, you're going to have what's called your ear into the, the maintenance phase. And it used to be back in the day, you finish your board certification and you're good for life. You're certified for life. You never had to take additional exams. Well, you know, we still want physicians to learn stuff and to stay abreast on current practices. And a lot of it you do just by actively practicing medicine. But eventually they uh, added some structure and a lot of organizations introduced maybe, a, I think it was a 10-year recertification process where oftentimes you had to take another exam after 10 years of practicing to recertify. Maintenance of certification is a process designed to ensure that physicians continue to maintain and update your clinical knowledge and skills throughout their medical career. It's an ongoing process that goes beyond the initial board certification. Typically, again, there's periodic assessments. So initially there was like a, a test every 10 years, and now most organizations have switched to a model where you take X number of questions and you do X amount of CME, 
continuing medical education credits. And together that, you know, you don't have to take another exam, but you continuously certify uh, or maintain your board certification. The frequency and specifics of maintenance of certification varies depending on the specialty board. Some boards may require these activities annually. Some have longer intervals. I think for some organizations, they're even shifting from a 10-year recertification period to a five-year recertification period. Not participating in or failing to meet the requirements of maintenance of certification may lead to a loss of board-certified status depending on the regulations of your board. So again, your board certification is often one-time achievement. Maintenance of certification is an ongoing process. The controversy occurs while board certification is generally viewed positively, maintenance of certification has been a point of contention among, among a lot of physicians. A lot of people argue that this is burdensome, it's expensive, it's not, it's not necessarily correlated with improved patient outcomes. Proponents of maintenance of certification think it's essential that physicians remain competent in these ever-evolving specialties. So while board certification does establish that you have an expertise in a particular specialty at a given time, this maintenance certification is designed to ensure that you maintain this expertise and update your knowledge throughout your career. The American Board of Medical Specialties is a leading organization that oversees the certification of many specialists in the United States. So the American Board of Medical Specialties supports an array of medical specialties and subspecialties through the member boards. So I'm going to read off a list and most of these apply, right? Most of our specialties are under this board. Allergy and, immuno- allergy and immunology, anesthesiology, colorectal surgery, dermatology, emergency medicine, family medicine, internal medicine, neurosurgery, nuclear medicine, obstetrics and gynecology, ophthalmology, orthopedic surgery, otolaryngology, head and neck surgery, pathology, pediatrics, physical medicine and rehabilitation, plastic surgery, preventive medicine, psychiatry, neurology, uh, radiology, surgery, American Board of Surgery, thoracic surgery, and urology. So each of these specialties also have subspecialties that fall under this as well. Continuing on with the conflict. So what's, what's the big deal? The problem is you've already paid exorbitant amounts of money for your medical education. You know, you came out of medical school with $100,000 in debt. During medical school, you also paid for your board certification, your initial board certification to become a board certified physician, your steps one, two, and three. Last time, I didn't even want to do the math again. You know, the tests were like 800 bucks each, something like that. So you're paying thousands of dollars at this point already. You also have to pay for your state licensure. You have to pay for your specialty boards. For anesthesia, I think it was like... 1500 for the written test, another two grand or so for the oral board exam. You've done all that stuff. You've paid that money. You've completed your education. You are board certified. Now you're in the maintenance of certification phase where every year you're going to incur another fee. And you get, you have no say about it. It's either do this to maintain your board certification or, or not, and you're no longer board certified. So every year, you know, all these things are are not cheap and it starts to add up. For me, I think to maintain my anesthesia board certification or, or MOC, it's like $200 a year. And then uh, once I'm critical care boarded, that's another like $100 a year. And then there's the continuing medical education credit or a CME that you're also paying for to maintain your certification. There is a conflict of interest, which we'll, we'll get into more soon. 
So with the American Board of Medical Specialties, it claims that board certification is voluntary, but in practice, it's pretty much mandatory due to the trend towards specialization in medicine. So physicians at ACGME-accredited medical training hospitals must pay for and participate in maintenance of certification before they can invest in their chosen continuous professional development programs. This mandatory nature of maintenance of certification has led to several antitrust lawsuits starting in 2018 against various American Board of Medical Specialties member boards. Basically, uh, again, as you're doing this CME credits and doing these questions to maintain your maintenance certification, you, you have to pay for this. So Dr. Fisher, he's a cardiologist. I think he's up in Chicago and he has a contested blog that kind of breaks down a lot of this information that I'm sharing. And he talks about how uh, federal law sees agreements that unfairly restrain trade as antitrust laws. When a seller forces a buyer to purchase two separate products together, this can be construed as antitrust. And the crux of the lawsuit for against the American Board of Medical Specialties is that they've created this uh, antitrust situation where physicians, you have to buy a maintenance of certification, which is separate from your initial board certification. And if you don't, you're going to lose your board certification. So in, to break it down uh, in layman's terms, federal law prohibits any agreement that creates an unreasonable restraint of trade. One type of restraint of trade is when a seller creates a tie by forcing a buyer to purchase separate products together. Here, certification is, a, is separate from maintenance of certification, and physicians are forced to buy maintenance of certification, and because if they don't, you'll lose your initial board certification. Some of the court cases are, are uh, Kinney versus American Board of Internal Medicine. The court actually sided with the American Board of Internal Medicine because they argued that maintenance of certification was just a part of the certification. They argued that the maintenance of certification was just a component of the certification, there's two separate products. In SIVA versus the American Board of Radiology, the appeals court recognized certification and maintenance of certification as distinct products. Still, they upheld this dismissal because they they believed maintenance certification was not a substitute for other continuing professional development products. So again, these arguments are coming down to you don't technically have to pay for maintenance of certification. This is what the Board of Medical Specialties is saying because you don't have to, to maintain that. However, we know that if you don't maintain it, you will likely move, lose your job depending on where you practice. In Lazarou versus the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology, uh, I guess this is still in the court system, but it's significant that the court has taken note of the findings from some previous court cases and there you know, we'll see how this one works out. Maintenance of certification has likely had negative impacts overall on the U.S. healthcare system, and and there's a large potential, depending on who you speak with and and looking online and watching the the conversation, the dialogue, that maintenance of certification is motivated by by greed and financial reimbursements for the heads of these organizations because they are profiting off of working physicians. They know we have to pay into the system to continue to practice and to make a living. Physicians feel undervalued. We feel compelled to purchase maintenance of certification, even though there's no concrete evidence that it's beneficial to patient safety or to patient care. In fact, you know, if you think about all the time that you spend studying and the money you spend uh, for these exams, for these questions, you're, you're probably taking time away from providing patient care, taking time away from your family, 
um, all those things that contribute to burnout in medicine and worsened healthcare outcomes. Overall, you know, what is the value that certification processes bring to the table? You know, are there any studies that show or demonstrate that there is better outcomes? It's more likely that this is uh, just another facet of a corrupt healthcare system that's driven by monetary gains and political influence versus genuine patient care. This is going to come up, you know, thankfully there's a lot of folks that are at a stage in their career, you know, that we're just tired of this. I think the pandemic, you know, kind of changed the mindset of a lot of physicians for, you know, how much work we're doing. And it just changed the, that equation, the math on, you know, just working for the systems that probably don't value us. And these maintenance of certifications, it's kind of death by a thousand paper cuts. One of the big problems with these organizations is they hold all this power and they can change their minds at will going from 10 years of certification down to five years. You know, they're charging you 200 bucks this year. They could just double their, their fees next year at, at their own whim. And you'll see, you know, depending on where you are in your career, different ways, if you're in academic medicine or even if you're in private practice, you do want to be involved in some of the government of your medical specialty. It's better to be, you know, at the table, right? If you're not at the table, then you're on the menu, some, some phrase to that effect. So it's important to, to be abreast of these concepts, these things that are going on behind closed doors. At some point in your career, you're going to be able to apply to some of these boards. Another thing that's probably closer is some things that I've gotten asked to do is as part of your promotion, you know, you get hit up by or you get emailed from somebody saying, hey, can you help write board questions? Can you help us? Because you realize just like with the publishing world where you have commercial publishers, Elsevier and others that, you know, have you do all of this writing and publications and, and revisions and reviews, and then they're going to take your paper, you get a little bullet on your CV, and then they're going to sell that in their journals and make a, a ridiculous amount of money. The same way these American specialty boards are, you know, yeah, you write some questions for their exam. You're not being financially compensated for that. You get a little bullet on your CV, but are you really, you know, helping or you are working for somebody else for free? So it's the healthcare system that continuously like kind of takes and takes and takes. And right now people are starting to wake up. So this is very exciting. There is a petition. I'm not sure, you know, how much this is going to help in the long run. But if you go to Aaron Goodman's Twitter, you'll be able to find a link to this petition. That's just signing. I think they're up to like 19,000 signatures and just trying to kind of at least get some attention, get some traction going to say, hey, this isn't right. We need to find a different solution to this maintenance of certification that we're all forced to take part in. Right now, it's a change.org petition to eliminate American Board of Internal Medicine's maintenance of certification requirement. So hopefully, you know, start with one and then it gains traction. It's up to 18,971 signatures with the goal of 25,000. So definitely check out Aaron Goodman's Twitter and, you know, toss your hat into the ring. I'm going to close out this week's episode by talking about some ethical concerns of artificial intelligence in medicine. 
if, you know, unless you've been hiding under a rock somewhere, artificial intelligence is taking over. Chat GPT, that's what writes most of the show notes for these episodes. Such a fantastic tool. You've got uh, programs like Dolly that can draw images based upon what you describe. I use a lot of this in, you know, editing the podcast and generating uh, content to discuss my podcast. Most of these show notes I'm talking about today were generated with ChatGPT. But as these artificial intelligence tools start to make their way into medicine, uh, last time I was reading an article, I was working on a paper about this actually, I think over 300 uses have been applied or, or applied for with the FDA in terms of medical devices, uh, with AI um, kind of infrastructure. So it's coming to a hospital near you. There's startups everywhere that are, you know, trying to harness artificial intelligence and machine learning and get it into the patient care spectrum. So ethical questions are going to come up. And how do we harness this and protect patients, make sure we're doing the right thing for as many folks as we can? Earlier this year, so like spring of 2023, there's actually a partnership between Microsoft and Epic, uh, Epic, the uh, electronic healthcare record. And they are, you know, working, going to be working together to kind of shape and form artificial intelligence and how it interfaces with the healthcare system. They're going to integrate generative artificial intelligence into online portals. They're going to assist physicians in addressing patient inquiries. So it's kind of one of the, you know, two juggernaut companies coming together to work together with artificial intelligence and in a way that very much affects the, the quality of care being delivered. In this space, we have, you know, so many different parties and it's like, how do you regulate this technology? How do you keep it safe? How do you keep it from hurting people? The White House Office of Science and Technology Policy and the National Institutes of Standards and Technology have both provided ethical guidelines for integrating artificial intelligence. They've written a blueprint for an artificial intelligence bill of rights, and they've written an artificial intelligence risk management framework. Their aim is to safeguard individuals from the challenges that are posed by the automated systems. I just watched a documentary, though, on uh, Bad Lettuce. It was, on, it was on Netflix, and it talks about how these different regulatory organizations, you know, they, they took a, a cheeseburger in a restaurant and were like, you know, the FDA... Uh, regulates this, and then the Farm Bureau does this, and like basically how all these organizations take a piece of the pie, Department of Agriculture, and it's hard for them to work collaboratively. And that's just for the food that we've had, you know, all, all of our lives. So I can only imagine, you know, trying to trust the federal government and these uh, corporations with private interests to regulate themselves, right? It's a, a wing and a prayer. The healthcare sector needs to develop strategies for executing these frameworks and ensure that artificial intelligence tools are being used ethically. A crucial aspect of this is a long-term maintenance and improvement of these tools and focusing on bias detection and elimination. So there's been articles already about the, develop, the, the development of artificial intelligence. And depending on who is building the programs, right? If you go to Silicon Valley or wherever the hub is for artificial intelligence development, you're not going to find a very diverse group of people programming these systems and these machines. And especially when it comes to healthcare, um, when your artificial intelligence is going to impact the quality of care delivered, going to possibly make diagnoses one day, you need to make sure that they're being programmed equitably, justly, and fairly. 
This article goes on or, or reading from the Hastings Institute is they're a think tank, a bioethics think tank, and they have great uh, emails and content that I always try to, to keep up with. They talk about ongoing maintenance because once you've developed and built this artificial intelligence, these machine learning models, you're going to have to continuously update them and look at the quality of information they're putting out. Are they starting to hurt people? What do you need to do to tune up that information and get it back on track? So it's not just a, a one and done. There's concerns about the imbalances and prejudices in artificial intelligence and machine learning. Um, there's cases where algorithms worsened health inequities. There's an algorithm that favored white patients over black patients with regards to uh, mental health. And, you know, based on their, their algorithms, black patients received less um, access to mental health or prescriptions or referrals to psychiatrists. I think it was just in a model compared to white patients. There's another uh, study with artificial intelligence diagnosing or evaluating chest x-rays and diagnosing, I think it was pneumonias and black patients suffered uh, worse outcomes there as well. I think it was like a 30% decreased uh, screening rate for them. Artificial intelligence developers, they recognize that these issues are present and uh, they're, they're having issues integrating fairness into these designs. The emphasis is often on that initial deployment or development of these systems. We're not thinking about sustainability or adjustments. You know, when you're bidding on government contracts, you really just need like that, that initial um, idea or model to work. And then you've got the, the contract. We can worry about the rest of the stuff later. But it's important to say, hey, we need to develop a method for continuous quality improvement in these systems. When you have an artificial intelligence model where you have big data and machine learning, that effectiveness of that system can change due to slight alterations in data or in context. There was uh, another example of a sepsis prediction model, and it quickly became unreliable just because of a couple of different variables that, that changed. The reasons for these shifts can vary from technological changes to behavioral adjustments, and uh, maybe you need to update the incentives of the algorithms. The current guidelines from the FDA don't address artificial intelligence model degradation over time or different settings comprehensively. The focus of the Food and Drug Administration on safety doesn't encompass the entire ethical and societal implications of artificial intelligence throughout its life cycle. This is, again, the point of, of this article by the Hastings Institute. We need to develop this infrastructure. So what do we need to look into in terms of opportunities to guide the development and the maintenance of these systems? We need to commit the resources. There should be an adequate allocation of the time and money required to maintain these artificial intelligence and machine learning systems. You need many different stakeholders from diverse backgrounds involved, from developers to ethicists, patients, clinicians. You have to take stock of all the uh, involved parties to make sure we're all working together to develop and maintain the uh, fidelity of these systems. We need to establish dedicated centers within the healthcare system to ensure that we can sustain appropriate artificial intelligence performance. And then both technical and societal uh, mechanisms need to be developed for when artificial intelligence goes off the rails, when it starts giving us bad data, bad outcomes. How do you uh, identify that and then fix it? The current practice of intermittent evaluations fails to detect inequalities in a timely matter. By the time a flaw becomes evident, trust has been eroded and damage has already been done. 
Once a tool is broken enough to notice, it's too late. So while artificial intelligence and machine learning promise enhanced care, diagnostic capabilities, and hopefully patient outcomes, their potential can only be harnessed with robust maintenance and repair systems. As technological advancements surge, the need for supporting and improving existing systems becomes imperative to prevent perpetuating societal disparities and to uphold patients' rights and health. So stay tuned in this emerging field. You know, as new technologies and, and things come out on the market, people always jump on them, right? The uh, early adopters. And sometimes it's important to sit back and look at other ways that we can get involved. There's going to be a huge need for ethics and artificial intelligence. There's a couple people in this space. So, you know, it's one opportunity to start reading about and to become an expert in this field. Um, I'm certainly keeping an eye on it and reading all the things that I can and would be happy to, to chat further. But curious about your thoughts. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of the podcast. Thanks for rocking with us. We've been back on the air two months now. So July was a, a great month. Saw a awesome spike in the numbers, tons of new downloads, new listeners. Thank you so much if that's you. And we were able to continue the momentum in August. Still working to bring you resources that will help increase the diversity that we so desperately need to see in our healthcare workforce. If you've enjoyed listening to the show, definitely give us a shout out, share this episode with somebody you think um, you know may find it useful if they have a history of, of posting hot takes on Twitter or if they're interested in ethics or you know tech nerd and, and into artificial intelligence and the, these new things that are coming online. If you haven't already, you know, visit us on iTunes or Spotify, wherever you're listening to the show. Leave us a rating. Leave us a comment. It really helps the show to grow. Our goal is to, you know, break the top 200 list on iTunes by the end of the year. So we really appreciate your help with that. We've, we've done it before. I think uh, when we were first on the air, you know, we were in the like 120s and even as high as I think 75 on the list, which is awesome. But again, you know, the, the real reason we're here is to to support diversity in healthcare and to provide representation. So tune in next week to the Black Doctors Podcast. I'm Stephen, your host. So glad you could join us. We're here because representation matters.